The following audio is brought to you by Emmanuel Baptist Church in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. More information about our church can be found at emmanueltuscaloosa.org. Okay, uh, we have been going through uh, for the last, I think this is week 15, of a time period between Old Testament and New Testament. So largely history, if you haven't been with us for all that time, we have been, um, we, have, we left the Old Testament, we brought it to a close on the timeline, and then we kind of dealt with the 400-year period between the close of the Old Testament with the book of Malachi, and we're getting closer and closer to the opening of the New Testament with the book of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Well, maybe not necessarily the books, but at least the story of Jesus itself. Uh, the incarnation of Christ, his crucifixion, his resurrection, and then all that took place following that. So we're, we're quickly getting into that, and we're having to now set up a lot of uh, circumstances that are very much relevant to the time of Jesus. So the last few weeks, we've looked at really three big groups that are uh, in and around the scene when Jesus is walking around. Um, that would be the, obviously the Pharisees, the Sadducees are the two biggest of those groups, the Essenes a couple of weeks ago, which is a group of people you never hear mentioned in the New Testament, but their ideology you actually see a, quite a bit in the New Testament, at least lived out in many of the apostles and things like that as the church begins to form in Acts. And then last week we talked about a fourth group that uh, you'll see uh, just very sparingly mentioned in the New Testament, in, in one disciple in particular. But uh, you see their philosophy kind of permeate the way the disciples think when Christ initially comes, when they're walking with Jesus. They kind of present themselves as zealots. That's the other group that we were looking at. Now remember, zealots, they're considered this sort of fourth philosophy. There's mainly three main ones, which is the uh, Pharisees, Sadducees, and Essenes. But that fourth group, the zealots, they did have a lot of persuasion over people and a lot of power. And uh, particularly in the late first century, they refused to submit to the Romans. They didn't like the Romans at all. Um, and they considered the paying of taxes to the Roman government to be a cowardly gesture where you, as a person who's supposed to serve the Lord and revere the Lord, are submitting to worldly men. And that is cowardly. You're not following after, after the Lord, and so that, that is how they considered it. Um, they were, ideologically, they were heirs of the Maccabees. Now, they're separated by a number of years, but the Maccabees, remember, is a group that we're going to see mentioned again tonight. The Maccabees is the initial group of Jews that revolt against the Greeks. Essentially, the Greeks, the Seleucids, the Ptolemies, really the Seleucids are controlling the, the region, and the Maccabees are the first ones to go, we're not taking this anymore. We have had enough of this. We're not going to sacrifice pigs to Zeus. We're not going to do you know, all the things that the Greeks want us to do. We're not going to become more Greek. We've, we're done. And so they started killing some people. I mean, they just started taking them out left and right, and they kind of they collected a good bit of a following and led to a substantial revolt from the Jews against the Greek empire that was, that was seeking to kind of enforce their will. So the zealots are a descendant, if you will, of them, at least in terms of idea. They kind of took the same approach and were like, we need, to, we need to revive our concern with these Greeks. And so 
they did it a lot of different ways where they would go on a raids against the Romans, against the Greeks, they would raid them. They would kill some people that, depending on how you look at it, were innocent, uh, at least. They were at least trying to kind of persuade people toward Hellenism, but they would kill these people in some cases with these little small daggers that they would have. They would sneak up on them in the marketplace and just kill them, drop them dead, and walk off, you know. Um, and then they would go on these raids where they would find villages of people that were their political enemy, and they would just burn them to the ground in sort of a Joshua and Jericho kind of, kind of situation, you know, almost like a holy war kind of thing. They would burn these villages to the ground. And the Zealots believed that there would be a time when God would save the Jews. But the way that they conceived of that salvation happening was that God was going to bring in a strong man, a David type, who was going to sit on the throne. He was going to be an heir of David. He was going to sit on the throne, and he was going to politically lead them to freedom away from the Romans. Now that right there, when you start digging into the zealots' belief, that is right there with how the disciples are conceiving of what Jesus is going to do. Okay, you're a descendant of David, and da-da-da-da, this is what's going to happen. And then even when Jesus rises from the dead, he got, in Acts, the beginning of Acts, they're like, are you now going to, is that when this happens? Are you going to turn the, you know, over to the Jews? And so they're asking that question of Jesus even then. Um, and we find out Jesus is not, he, he tells uh, Pilate, he tells his disciples in really no uncertain terms, my kingdom is not of this world. His first coming, when he establishes the kingdom through his crucifixion, his resurrection, and then ultimately his ascension, is not the time in which he's going to go to physical battle with people, but it's a time for people to be called to repentance and faith. So the, the military campaign, if you want to put it in those terms, that is going on now in the name of Jesus is the preaching of the gospel. And that, that gospel is being proclaimed and people submit to it through repentance and faith and come to Jesus that way. Then there is a time at the end where it all is ended. Uh, and if you want to put that in, term, in military terms, it's ended mil militarily in a, in a great battle. Uh, I, wouldn't, I don't necessarily know that it's really a battle as much as it is a one-sided... We're going to be very lopsided, we'll put it that way. Uh, sort of like Cowboys versus Giants. It's kind of that, that way if you follow. Uh, <laughs> no? Okay. Well, not many pro, ad, pro fans in here. I get it, I get it. But as a Cowboy fan, I watched last night, last Sunday night with Glee. So it just, you know, uh, it was good to see. All right, um, but I digress. We're going to move on. Um, so, so now as we kind of speed on toward the New Testament, there's, there's some groundwork that we got to lay uh, beforehand. And, and so we're going to spend some time with the Romans because there's too much in terms of all the stuff that's going on in Rome to cover in one, in one night. All I want to do tonight really is set up uh, at least the government in Jerusalem and Judea and that area and kind of show what's going on at least in the government as far as the government goes. And then in subsequent weeks, we're going to look at just the Roman government as a whole and how the empire functioned a little bit. We're going to look at how, what the religious aspects were under Roman control in the land, how, how they dealt with the people that were in charge. And then, uh, after Herod the Great, 
how things are handed off. It, get, it can get really confusing. So if I were to do all that in one night, I think it would just be too much for me to keep track of, too much for certainly having, what, 30 minutes or 45 minutes to, to digest the information, too much for you to take over to. Timothy. Already a question? I haven't even said anything yet. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, sure. Yeah. Timothy says, uh, you know, the, the uh, many in this era used violence. That that seems kind of separated, in large part at least, separated from the rest of society and kind of lived almost as, uh, as monks. But some of the other ones, especially the zealots, used violence to accomplish their means. And he was saying that that's kind of attractive to us. But it's, uh, according to Scripture, it's associated with the wicked. You, you remember the, the disciples. Uh, I, th- I find it fascinating. You don't, get, you don't get all of the account in any one gospel, but you can lace it together of what happened when Jesus is arrested and Peter has a sword on his, on his hip and he goes after the head of the person that comes at him. Or maybe he did go after the ear. I just... I don't know, but he chops off the ear of a man named Malchus, and Jesus tells him to put the sword away. If you live by the sword, you'll die by the sword. He picks up Malchus's ear, and he puts it back on. And this is all preceding him telling, telling Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, this is, the, this is the caveat that he gives. If it were, they would be out there with swords right now taking and wouldn't let, you, wouldn't let me get in, into captivity right now. That, that's a guarantee. But it's not, so you're still allowed to live, Pilate. You know, basically, is kind of the, the, the point. But, um, but yeah. But that is to say that God will repay. That's the promise: is that it's His. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. All right. So, uh, so now we're into the the Roman times. But before we really get in there, let's let's take a look at where this whole Roman association began. And actually, you kind of might wonder. Uh, it seemed when we went through the Maccabean revolt, it just seemed too easy. They killed a guy. He made he made a, he wanted to make him sacrifice a pig to the, to Zeus, and they said no, we're not going to do that. And and the Maccabees just you know killed him, killed some Greek soldiers, and well they were off to the races. And they started this group, and then they had a bunch of people, and then they took over Jerusalem and all this. And it seemed kind of like well that didn't seem that hard, did it? Well, part, it was due in part to the fact that when the Maccabean insurgents happened, um, the Maccabees quickly partnered with Rome and got the attention of Rome's growing power. They, they understood that out there on the horizon, Rome was taking off. In fact, if you'll remember, when Antiochus 
uh, Epiphanes, or Antiochus IV, before he went into Jerusalem, he was down in Egypt fighting, and he was wanting to take over Egypt. And the, the group that stopped him from taking over Egypt was Rome. Rome was down there, and they had interest in Egypt, and so their power is growing out on the horizon. They weren't, at the time, as powerful as the Roman Empire, but they were growing. And then you get into Mark Antony and Cleopatra and all the kind of thing. Rome had its tentacles into Egypt for a long time, and had for a long time anyway. And so Rome's power is growing out there on the horizon. And so after Judas takes power in the Maccabean revolt, Judas Maccabeus sends a, de sends a delegation to Rome and, and seeks to establish a friendship with them. We've seen this happen before, right? This was the same thing that uh, a, a particular Persian general did at one point. Do you remember this? He kind of built a relationship with some... The enemy of my enemy is my friend, right? And that's kind of how you think of it. We don't have the kind of power that we need to take on the Greek Empire. So what are we going to do? We're, we see a, a country out there that also does not like the Greek Empire. We're going to make friends with them really fast. And it turned out to be a brilliant move at first... Uh, is partnering with the enemy. But then at some point, if you don't take on the enemy of your, of your enemy, then they become your enemy. So if you can follow all the enemies there. Um, but they see the Greeks as, uh, as obviously an enemy too, so they partner with Rome. They want some relief from the Greeks trying to enslave them, and we'll deal with Rome later, right, is kind of the thinking, I suppose. Turned out that wasn't so well thought through, I guess. Um, so the Maccabees had not won control of Judea by their own efforts alone, but sought and presumably received Rome's assistance. The Roman Senate agreed to a treaty with the Maccabean party. And the treaty was basically, if you scratch our backs, we'll scratch yours. If we get attacked, you, you help us. If you get attacked, we'll help you. And so there's military assistance being provided uh, mutually from both groups. And, and, you know, the Maccabees, for their part, we saw how shrewd they really are. How, how, how honestly, just good fighters they really were. Militaristically, they had a lot of interest. And so, especially in keeping Rome on board. So they formed this treaty, and Rome is promising to give them help. So this is really kind of the first... Uh, if you want to say Roman venture into the Holy Lands and to actually having their, their fingers in the, in the pot here and sort of mixing it up there in the Holy Lands and pushing back against the Greeks. So eventually, Simon Maccabeus, who is the youngest brother, remember there was uh, the, the, the father and then there were the three sons and Simon is the youngest of the sons. And at the end of Simon's reign, is when things shifted in the Maccabean Revolt and, it, and the Hasmonean dynasty just didn't have the punch that it once had under the kids. Simon is the last one. And Simon actually accomplished a, a great deal. He was the one that was able to get into Jerusalem and finally push the Greeks out of Jerusalem entirely so that the Hasmoneans had control over all of Jerusalem. Now, it's, I know it's hard to remember back that far, but, um, but when... When the Romans saw what Simon did in Jerusalem and all that he was beginning to accomplish, they renewed their alliance with the Maccabees. So it, their friendship between 
um, between the Maccabees and, or the Hasmonean dynasty and the Romans are growing under Simon and others. All right. And then 63 BC comes around. Okay. So that's like, we're looking up to that point, we're looking at 143 to 134 BC. Okay. That's a good, good distance away. Pretty much, a, a, not quite 100 years, but about 80 years later, roughly, 80 to 60 years later, in 63 BC, there's a, vi, a vie for power between two descendants of the Hasmoneans, Hyrcanus II, John Hyrcanus II, they're named after their fathers, and Aristobulus II, they're both vying for power. That's how we should do it, instead of junior, just two, you know, I think. It sounds, it sounds so much cooler. Sounds like a, you know, king or something. Um, or a pope, maybe, I don't know. Um, but, uh, so they're vying for control in Judea, and they've each got their factions, and they're trying to figure out who is going to take control, and there's, they're trying to fight in one way or another. They've got one person on one side giving them advice, that this is how you should do it, and this, this is how you should do it. And so they kind of each take their, get into their corners and, and pursue their own measures, and then Rome gets involved. And they're like, tired of seeing this whole fight thing play out. We need to know who we're partnering with. And so there is a Roman general who is in Syria, which is just north of the Holy Land. He's in Syria. His name is Pompey. And, well, that's his nickname anyway. We call him Pompey. His real name is Latin, and it, don't worry about it. Uh, it. You know, Pompeius Maximus Decimus Meridius or something. I don't know. But we just call him Pompey, right? <laughs> so, so he's in the area, he's in Syria, and he's fighting, and he is sent, he is dispatched to go down there and figure out the matter and put it to rest. So he goes down there into Jerusalem and uh, seeks to put an end to this, and he's, he's there in the area. Now, Pompey uh, gets down there through his lieutenant, to investigate the dispute, and instead of agreeing to support either side and just settling the matter altogether, Pompey's troops seized Jerusalem and took control of it for Rome. So, it's you remember that story where the the um, the uh, what is it? The I think it's the frog it carry agrees to carry the scorpion on its back across the across the stream. You remember this? And the scorpion says, "I won't." I won't sting you. You know, I, I need to get across the stream. And the, fr and the frog says, after much deliberation, says, well, fine, I'll take you. And the scorpion gets on its back, and he takes it across the stream. And then when he gets across, the scorpion turns around and, and devours the, you know, kills the frog. And he says, what are you doing attacking me? And he says, well, I'm a scorpion. That's what I do. <laughs> that kind of tends to be what happens when you partner with, uh, you know, Rome is eventually when they get strong enough and they see a weakness, a gap in the defenses, they just go ahead, this is our time, and so they take control of, of the area of Jerusalem. And if you take control of Jerusalem, you pretty much have control of the country. And that, that is, that's what the Maccabees saw back then, that's what Simon Maccabeus sees back then, is that, look, if you have control of Jerusalem, you have control of the rest of the country. So Rome gets control of Jerusalem, and by the way... Um, it ain't never coming back through the New Testament, right? So it, it, for the rest of the New Testament, this is where it all begins. As far as we're concerned, 63 B.C., uh, Rome gets control of Jerusalem. 
Now, here's what we, Rome becomes the bad guy, effectively. Rome is responsible, in large part, for killing many of the apostles, the disciples, I mean, pretty much, most all of them anyway, the Jews are responsible for some of it too, but, um, the, the, so the Romans have a relatively bad reputation in the New Testament, rightfully so, they were vicious people, they obviously put Jesus to death, or were in part, uh, in league with the Jews to do that, and so they, they garner a terrible reputation, but if we're just thinking politically for just a second, we zoom out politically, they, as far as many kingdoms are concerned, they're pretty moderate. Uh, when it comes to their actual rule. For the most part, Rome wanted everybody to just kind of be at peace. Like, the thing that they cared about the most were uprisings. Look, if you stay quiet and you don't, you know, create a, an uprising in the land, you're pretty much going to be left alone. And you're going to have the, the peace to, to kind of do whatever you want. There was a lot of like religious freedoms, a lot of um, you know social institutions and things like that in the in the area that they sort of left up to local government. We're going to see that even in the New Testament. In fact, there's a passage in John. If you pay close attention, it's shortly after. I, I, I want I can't remember chapter and verse. I want to say it's about chapter 12 of John, right around there. Chapter 11 is where Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. And remember, there's a lot of there's a lot of people that are debating, like, what do we do now that there's a dead guy that's now wa- walking? And so the Sanhedrin, if you can believe it, decide to kill Lazarus because they, they want to kill Lazarus because, well, that'll destroy the evidence. The reasoning that they use for putting Jesus to death is right there in, it's either at the end of 11 or beginning of 12. They say if Rome gets wind of what Jesus is doing, and that he's going around raising dead people from graves, they're going to come down here and put an end to us. Right? So, the Sanhedrin, what, what can be missed there is that the Sanhedrin, which is a Jewish government we haven't talked about yet, we're getting there, uh, the Sanhedrin is permitted to exercise some measure of power and authority in the land, and actually enforce laws and things like that in the area of Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and, and, and on, Galilee. Um, and the Roman magistrates that are there, really, as long as everything's peaceful, and as long as there's no uprisings, and everybody's happy with you, then we don't care. Do whatever you want to do. But the minute things get out of hand, the minute there's an uprising, the minute there is someone, in a, group, a big mob of people in the streets saying, crucify him, then we're going to be killing some people, right? So Rome has a threshold that they're going to get to when there is a mob that is at at odds with somebody, that person's probably going to be put to death, right? Because it's the uprising that is the biggest concern. Um, So this comes into play in the crucifixion of Jesus, not in an insignificant way. The Jewish authorities know that if they cause a big enough stink over this man, then Rome will do whatever is necessary to put an end to it. So that includes crucifixion. And if you read the Gospels that way, and you understand the trial of Jesus that way, you can see that Pilate is like, why would I put this guy to death? He seems, he's a peasant. He's not, you're telling me 
the, his group of people are going to, that are, that are peasant farmers, essentially peasant fishermen, are going to knock down this temple? Like, that's, your, that's their goal? <laughs> you know? They don't have the ability to do that. And so, like, it, he's kind of seen as sort of like this, well, he, what, what's this guy? He's weak, you know? But what ends up persuading him is this mob of people that are outside his door saying, crucify him, right? So it kind of is par for the course in terms of, as far as Rome's concerned. That's the passage, yes. I think it's 12, isn't it? 12 something. Yeah. 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 And that, and that is essentially what the, it's better that one man die. That is essentially the M.O. of the Jewish authorities is, look, we can kill this guy so that Rome doesn't come in here and see what he's doing. Because if we let him go on long enough, this is the reasoning, and, it, and it's Lazarus' resurrection that sort of is the final straw that kind of pushes them over because it's the one that is the least deniable, right? I mean, tell me, if you're down at a... At a graveyard, and somebody is claiming he's the Messiah, and there's some question, he's done some crazy things, you know, and you're like, I'm kind of interested in what this guy's having to say, and then he says, so-and-so, come forth, and the grave just sort of opens up, and the guy walks out. Tell me what you would do, right? I mean, I think at some point we would be going, hey, wait a minute, I think there's some things to question here, (laughs) you know, starting to rethink my life all of a sudden, right? Well, you can understand that it's the least deniable. And so if they let Jesus go on for an extended period of time, a lot of people are going to be following him if he's going to be raising the dead. And so that is the thinking is, well, before long, the whole country is going to be up in arms following our new King David. And remember, the zealots right now are anxious about this new King David who is now coming in to raise the dead. And there's a zealot in his discipleship group right? Simon the Zealot. So you start putting some of these things together and all of a sudden you can, you can see where the Sanhedrin is going, we've got to kill this guy or Rome's going to come down here and kill us. And he's going to put an, put an end to us. Because ultimately they don't believe Jesus. They don't, I'm sure they don't, I don't know how they would explain uh, uh, Lazarus walking out of the tomb. I'm not sure other than just witchcraft or something. I'm sure is how, how they would explain it. But the point is, they want to put him to death. All right. So from the time of Pompey in 63, who he's just a Roman general, remember? He's not, a, he's not Caesar or anything like that. Caesar hasn't really been established yet. Um, but from the time of Pompey through the end of the first century A.D., so 100 A.D., uh, Palestine remained a client state of the Roman Empire. So a client state means that as a person born uh, in Jerusalem or, or Judea or Samaria or whatever, you're not a Roman citizen, but we have control over you, essentially is how it works. Okay? So the, the, the reason that's important is because instead of all of Jerusalem and Judea serving the Roman Empire, really, the Roman Empire had a vested interest in just keeping the stability in the region. Remember, we've talked about this for a number of weeks now, the area where Jerusalem and Judea is, is, is really key to that Fertile Crescent area, which is 
the northern part of Africa, all the way up through Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, Galilee, all the way over then in like a bridge, kind of all the way over into Babylon and that kind of thing. In fact, if you look at many of your maps in your Bibles, you'll see that. You'll see it all brown, like desert, and then that is a green area that's normally painted in there uh, because, well, that's why it's called the Fertile Crescent. There's a lot of rivers and water that runs through there. So that's a, that's a pivotal piece of property that is really important that people vie over. And so uh, it's important for Rome, if they want to get to Egypt, they want to get to various places, it's important to keep the stability in that region. So that's what they do. And that's their interest in it. But it's a client state. It's not part of the Roman Empire. That means you have to send us money, but we owe really nothing to you. Uh, so it's kind of a best of one world, I guess, <laughs> situation. Works out for Rome, not well for anybody else, really. Um, and so what they had interest in doing is keeping stability, and so putting somebody there who could stabilize the region and keep things under control was a big, was a big deal. So they found a guy who, uh, who went by the name of Antipater, or Antipater, however you want to call it. Um, and he was able uh, to not only stabilize the region, but because he did the job that he did, and because he, was, he had such credibility, he was able to appoint also his sons, uh, his one son Herod, the Tetrarch, as Tetrarch over Galilee, and his other son, Phazael, over Jerusalem and Judea. So Herod has control over Galilee, Phazael over Jerusalem and Judea, and they're kind of, they're working on behalf of their father, Antipater. And both sons obviously were capable, but as we know in history, Herod becomes the greater of the brothers, uh, even though he was the younger. Uh, the older will serve the younger, I guess, in this case as well. So Herod kind of outshines his brother and soon gains the reputation of being the one to replace Antipater when he dies. Well, at some point in the whole journey, rivals eventually poison Antipater in 43 B.C. Um, so there's question as to how he died. They, they, some say that he was uh, living it up with his concubines and somebody poisoned the, poisoned the water hole or the wine or whatever it was and, and ended, up, ended up killing him. There's kind of a mixed report on the how he, as to how he died. But that he was poisoned is pretty well accepted. Um, Herod the Great takes over um, takes over in um, 43 as soon as he dies. But it takes a while for Herod to gain the acceptance of Rome. So in fact, it takes nearly what is it six years basically between 43 and 37. Herod is essentially trying to prove himself. And here's what I didn't get into, which we're not going to talk too much about. There is a whole bunch of political turmoil that's going on in and around Rome at this point, including, not long ago, the death of Julius Caesar. Uh, and then he is, well, there's a triumvirate that then is, it takes place in terms of, in, in, in a sense, to rule uh, on behalf of the Senate. The Senate is more or less in control of the nation at this point. And so there's a lot of political turmoil that's going on which is very confusing and hard to sort out. But anyway, it takes Herod about six years before he's able to secure the position 
king of the Jews. And he does that by actually visiting Rome. And when he's there, Mark Antony, yes, Mark Antony and Cleopatra, that Mark Antony, who is a friend of Herod, presents Herod to the Senate, to the Roman Senate, and says, this guy should rule them all down there in the land of the Jews. So we should make him king of Judea, or king of the Jews. You've probably heard this term before. Yes. Uh, in fact, the next time Herod hears this term, it will be from some wise men that come asking him, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? King of Jews? That's my title, right? That's the thinking that goes on inside his head. Now, one of the big problems with Herod the Great, especially in gaining acceptance amongst the Jews, is that he is an Idumean. Where's that? Anybody heard that term before? An Idumean? What is that? Okay, east. What is it? Not a Moabite. He's an Edomite. That's what Idumean is, an Edomite. All right. So now we have one appointed king of the Jews who is a descendant of, who are the Edomites descendant of? Esau. See a biblical problem here? Big biblical problem, right? Wait a second. I thought the older will serve the younger. Isn't that what God told to Rebecca? The older will serve the younger? Well, in this case, Esau is back in control of Jacob. All right? And so he is going to have some hard time getting acceptance um, from the Jews. So, early on in his rule, he faces a lot of oppos opposition from the Hasmonean family, from the Maccabees. They push back against him. Obviously, the Zealots are still out there. They are not too thrilled with any of this. And um, they obviously have a lot of pool with some particular loyal, loyalists amongst the people. And eventually, he takes all the Hasmonean office holders and drowns them in a swimming pool. Yes, really. Drowns them in a swimming pool. Toilet. <laughs> you need that little hearing device. <laughs> in a swimming pool. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, back then, it probably was something like a toilet bowl. <laughs> you know? I mean, who knows? <laughs> Not a toilet bowl, a swimming pool. Uh, so he drowns him in a swimming pool. Now, I put this in here, and I, I left it in there because uh, we're going to, this is not the only week we're going to talk about Herod, but I want you to start to hear how crazy this guy is. I mean, the slaughtering of the children in Bethlehem is, no pun intended, child's play compared to many of the things that he did without a single thought against his conscience. So he is vicious, all right? It's, he's vicious if you cross him, all right? If you're on his side, you are blessed with riches, all right? So if you cross him, it's over. But if you're on his side, 
you're living in the lap of luxury. You're golfing buddies, yeah. So tell me what the incentive for you is. All right. So what he did in order to garner a lot of attention and to get people on his side to stabilize the region is he started building a whole bunch of buildings. You know this is true. We love attractive building projects. Amen? We love it when buildings look pretty. We've always been that. Every human in the world is like that. All right? When buildings look pretty, you just go, wow, that sure is pretty. And Herod knew this. I mean, he is a remarkable builder. There's not been a builder, I mean, probably as prolific as he is, especially before him at all. So he built many impressive building projects, and we're going to look at some of them in just a second, and you're going to see some pictures of them, and, and I promise you, you're going to, even by today's standards, you're going to say, that is impressive. I mean, really, it is. Especially when you consider what they had to work with back then. But he begins this building project in and around Judea, and he began as soon as he is appointed king of the Jews in 37 B.C. That's, a, that's the moment the building projects begin, and they really don't stop until he dies. They do slow down a good bit as he gets older, but they don't uh, really finish till he, till he dies, and we're going to at least cover some of them. We're, we'll talk about more of them later, the important ones we're going to look at today. So they kind of, most historians will break down his building projects in five, campa- five different stages. He, he paid attention to one area, would build, build, build there, and then he would turn his attention to another area. And so they kind of break it down in five different stages that way. So during stage one of his building campaign, which is roughly somewhere between 37 B.C. all the way to 30 B.C., Herod renovated and expanded uh, the fortress Antonia, or Antonia Fortress. For the defense of the temple, Antonia functioned as headquarters for Roman soldiers. I think the next slide is a picture of it. As soon as it comes up. There it goes. All right. Uh, I'm going to have to point to it because... So this is... This whole thing is the Temple Mount under Herod. So kind of, you know, put your hand over all of this stuff right here because that's not done yet. Just this right here. Okay? This is a fortress that you can see today, it still sits on the corner of the Temple Mount. So just outside the Temple Mount is a fortress called the Fortress Antonia. And that is uh, stop one on the campaign of building. And it's uh, headquarters for Roman soldiers. So as people are coming into the town of Jerusalem, a million people coming in for the slaughtering, sacrificing of you know, lambs and things like this, uh, this is a big ordeal. Uh, I think Josephus records somewhere in around 66 A.D., 140,000 sheep slaughtered for Passover. So with many, many families that that sheep represents. You know, so you're talking a big undertaking with a million people in the town in first century. So essentially the Roman soldiers are there, stationed there with a place, headquarters to, to live to secure the Temple Mount and make sure there's no disruptions there. So that's phase one, 37 to 30 B.C. In the second stage, 30 to 20 B.C., Herod established major palaces for himself 
as he travels around the area, Jerusalem, Herodium, and a three-tiered palace at Masada. He doesn't finish the palace at Masada, but he begins it. It's another step in building this palace at Masada, which included large bathhouses, storehouses for food and arms. I guess the left hand and the right hand, right arm. Uh, and I'm just kidding. And a large-scale water system on the mount's northwest slope. Okay, so I want to show you uh, the three pictures, at least, of, of his palaces. And you can, a couple of them are, are models, like what they would look like. And one of them is just a remnant because we don't have a model of it. Um, that would be his palace at Jerusalem. Uh, pretty impressive, you yeah? With a wall around it. Wall. And then here's palace. Courtyard. Another part of the palace, rest of the wall up here. Multi-million dollar estate, all right? Pretty impressive. That's, that's first, first century B.C. to first century, I mean, first century B.C. That's, that's impressive. When you have expendable slave labor, it tends to be what happens. <laughs> you, you can just tell them to build something, and they do it. Um, Herodium, this is the one we don't have a model for. His house is, this is his up here. Okay. And then comes down, my light's fading on me. Down here is the walkway up to it. And then the city, I was all down here. Yeah. Good view from up there is what I've been told. Uh, you know. And then Masada. Tier one, tier two, tier three, Masada is back up here. So it, at Masada, we, this, you can visit this. The, most of it's torn down, obviously. You just get kind of the floors of these houses as they're built. And, and there's, there's one that you visit in Caesarea Maritima, which is right there. Those of you who have been, you probably know there's the floor of his house that is built on the Mediterranean Sea, and it extends out into the Mediterranean Sea. And if you see a mock-up of what the house looked like, I mean, nobody in Hollywood has a house like this, like, oh, way back then. I mean, it is gorgeous, and a balcony that just overlooks the Mediterranean Sea, which if you've ever seen the Mediterranean Sea, is crystal clear and beautiful. Um, but this Masada, so back here behind the top, the third tier up there at the top, is basically just a flat plateau that drops off on either side, look, overlooks, you can see for billions of miles, it feels like. And back there are bathhouses that had floors with a subfloor underneath it. And they would, put, uh, they would put water on the main floor and then they would shovel hot coal on the subfloor underneath and it would heat up the water and then it would create steam in the bathhouses. And so they would go in and it would be a sauna. It would basically turn into a sauna as they shoveled coal underneath there. So impressive. I mean, really, really impressive. He was a builder. Then the third stage, this saved the best for last, you know, the third stage, 20 to 15 BC, uh, he turns his attention, uh, attention to the temple in Jerusalem. And um, you remember the temple had been built to some degree as kind of a pretty shabby little shack that was smaller than Solomon's temple. It was nothing compared to Solomon's temple. And he comes in and 
builds this structure to replace that temple. Essentially, he expands it. Officially, it's an expansion, but it's sort of like the expansion. Have you seen Extreme Makeover Home Edition? where they tear the whole thing down, basically, and then they go, move that bus, and then it goes out of the way, and it's like, it's like this massive mansion, and you're like, here's the before that doesn't even look like the same house, you know, as the one that came in. That's the kind of expansion that this really was, and I'll show you in just, just a second here. Uh, okay, this is Solomon's temple. This is Herod's temple. The one that he replaced, expanded, was smaller than this one. So, if that tells you anything, to say that this guy is a builder is an understatement. The, when you tour the Temple Mount, you go down to the original street level. And when you go down to the street level, you typically the tour stops at a one block, one, when I say block, not city block, a stone, right? That is a foundation stone for the Temple Mount that Herod put in there. And this thing is probably, David, probably from me to you, and it's taller than I am. One stone. It's that long and taller than me. And they don't know how far it goes back. But the estimate is tons and tons of weight on this thing. It's just an estimate of how big this thing is. Massive. And these, so go back then and read in Matthew 24, at the beginning of Matthew 24, when they're walking out of the temple, what the disciples say to Jesus. They say to him, I mean, look at these stones. They're huge. The, the one stone is taller than a man. And Jesus says, not one stone is going to be left unturned. <laughs> this whole place is coming down. And, yeah, so, it, it's, so Herod, for all of his impressive building projects and the stout nature of this temple that he's built, it's all torn to the ground really by the same army that built it. The difference being that the army, well, in both cases, the army is being directed by the Lord, right? Jesus says that. He says as much. Um, so when, when we look at Rome, it's sort of a little bit of both. There, like we've seen with a lot of them, there's good and bad that come with them. There is one some stability in the region that's being brought there. There is some freedom of religion, which just, if we can just go back for just a second. Remember that even though the Jews have been conquered and have been living under the domain of others, they have been given a lot of religious freedom to practice their religion how they want. In fact, when Pompey conquered Jerusalem, he walked into the Holy of Holies and he said... When he walked in, he was like, he, he remember remarking how there was nothing there. There was nothing in it. There was no icons. There was no images. There was no nothing because you don't worship images in Judaism or in Christianity. And so he, when he walked out, he gave permission to the priest to go in and cleanse the temple. 
Go do whatever you got to do to cleanse it. I know I'm a Gentile and I walked in there. He gives it, he gives it to him. So it's remarkable that even though they're conquered, and even though they lived under the thumb of so many other people, God did allow them an extreme measure of religious freedom to be able to preserve Judaism. And in spite of that, they didn't really want to, to one degree or another. But, so there is that part of it, that there is some stability, there is some religious freedom, but the other side of that is Rome is going to be the weapon that essentially God uses. Once Christ is crucified and resurrected, he's going to, he's, they're going to be the, the tool that God uses to do that. And they're going to be the tool that God uses to bring the temple down to the ground, tear it down to the studs, and, and end the domain of, of the Judaic age, the age where the temple reigns, and usher in uh, the age of the real King Christ. So, questions? Go ahead, Timothy. Right. Yeah. 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 Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jesus is the only king of Israel that didn't make alliances with that made people make alliances with him. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, that was the thing that ended. Yep. Scorpion on the back of the frog. Other questions or comments? Yeah, yeah, we have uh, we have uh, employment and uh, workman's comp, and they had do this or I'll kill you. I mean, basically, it was you know, it's like. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it turned. The aliens. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Is that, yeah, no, no. Uh, no. Shannon, Shannon asked, do they have an idea how they moved all those things? Uh, I mean, so. I think there are some that have, you know, it depends on what group you're talking about. Egyptians is one, Romans are another. Um, there are uh, a lot of different things that the Romans did employ to be able to, to move them. They kind of recorded a little bit more. I'm not aware of all the things that there are. But I, I want to emphasize again, they had tons and tons of slaves. So... I say that, I say part of that, some of that kind of jokingly, but in all seriousness, they had tons of slaves. Not only that, but the aqueducts and things like that, they, when the army was not fighting somebody, they were building. So a, a, a soldier was a you know, fighter for Rome, but was also a servant. So if you're not fighting, you're building aqueducts, or you're building... So a lot of the aqueducts coming into Israel were built by, the, by Roman soldiers. So I, I can't emphasize enough how many slaves to the empire they had and how they used them in various ways. So you, know, you, get, a, you get a rock that big, but you get 
hundreds of men around it, and it gets a little much. Well, I mean, they're going to employ rollers, and they're going to do a bunch of different things. Rollers and ropes and things like that. And you, you, so, like, you, you, can, you, can, you can see those, like, diagrams of them putting ropes around a block, and you got a mile long of people, you know, towing this big whatever. Eventually, they can pull that rock, but... <laughs> you definitely don't need aliens, but they help uh, with some of the. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. 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 Yeah. This is totally. This is kind of an aside, but on the same topic of like what men can do when they put their mind to it and, and things like that. What God's gifted them to do. Uh, just sometime in your spare time, look up the Coral Castle. It's in Florida. The Coral Castle. Just look it up and look at how it was built. It's kind of fascinating. It's an interesting story. I don't know how much of it's true, but just look it up in your own spare time. The Coral Castle. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for a time to gather together and to uh, just look at history and to see the developments that are coming along to bring about Christ, to bring about the salvation of humanity. Uh, by the death and resurrection of the eternal Son of God. Uh, how grateful we are for that, but how much we see actually went in, to the, to, in forethought to bring that about, and all by your wisdom and your sovereignty. And so we entrust ourselves to your sovereign care as well, and trust that you're still at work in all the same ways that you have been throughout history. And just as much... Uh, of the things that are going on in our lives are planned and coordinated by you. Nothing escapes your notice, and we know that. So we're grateful for it. And we entrust ourselves not only to your care and to your sovereign wisdom, but your kindness and your love for us. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. If you live in the Tuscaloosa area and are looking for a church, we'd love for you to visit. Our service times are Sunday mornings at 10.30 and Wednesday nights at 6.15.